0: So, uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan were clueless in Seattle. And, um, no, they were sleepless in Seattle. We're kind of clueless in America. All right? Um, The more that uh, we disconnect from the source of truth and light and revelation and understanding, the more clueless we become. But that's not the word the Bible uses for it. If you look at Romans 1, and I, you know... Just just a um, little commercial. If you want to understand the whole story of human history, the place to go is like Genesis one to three. You read those first three chapters in the Bible, and it kind of lays out the whole drama. Okay, because there's a lot to read in there, you know. And most of us, where do you start? You know, most of us start at the beginning, and it's it's different than most most books. It's a collection of sixty six books, and it's different types of literature. And it's like some of its history and some of its prophecy and some of its songs and wisdom and all that. So go to Genesis 1 and 3. And if you want to understand the condition of the human race today, how we got to where we are today, go to Romans 1. It really explains it uh, better than any other place in the New Testament. And it uses words for cluelessness like futile thinking. feudal thinking, that's Romans one twenty one, or foolish hearts being darkened. That's verse uh, 28, or fools, verse 22, or a depraved mind, verse 28. That explains why people think and do things that they do in the culture and in the world today. The cluelessness, you know, pops up in, in a variety of issues, a lot of ways. You know, there's a big deal going on now, which is gender confusion. According to God, it's very simple. Your gender is determined by how God made you, whether you have a male body or a female body. You are what your body says you are. Not what you think you are or what you feel you are. It's what your body says you are. For a boy to think he's a girl or vice versa is to be confused. Is to have a disordered mind. And what's needed is a mental or spiritual change, not a sex change okay god made us a certain way we need to accept this is who i am because this is given to me by god you know and some people don't like that but that's that's the way it is we're also clueless about sex most seem to think that sex with anyone as long as it's consensual is okay but what did jesus say he said God made them male and female. He's answering a question of people asking him about marriage. And they wanted, you know, they wanted to be able to get out of their marriages easily. They didn't want it to be for life with one man or one woman. And even though they were religious people, they thought, you know, marriage is kind of tough. And, and sometimes you marry a clunker and you want to trade it in for a better model. And so they're like, how can we get out of this commitment that we made in marriage? And Jesus said, listen, I'll tell you the way this works. She, God made them male and female. And then he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, a woman, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the sex act. They become one in the sex act. There's a, there's a mingling, there's a blending, a cementing of, of a body and a soul in the act of sexual intimacy. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So he told them, you, even if you feel like you married a clunker, you stick with her okay sex in god's word is affirmed only in a marriage between a man and a woman for life all other sex outside of marriage is sin it's really simple that's the that's the light that's the revelation of god okay now there's another area where we're getting clueless and that's in parenting and this one's to me is more complex because when you talk about parenting you're not just talking about yourself and dealing with your own body now you're talking about being responsible for another human being. And how specifically do you pass the faith on to another human being when human beings, all of our hearts, are bent towards saying no to God? We're, we're, we're born in sin. We're born as rebels. And we say that's just the bent of the human heart. So how do you raise another human to say yes to God? I mean, that, that's tough. It's, it's really hard. Do you find passing the faith along a challenge? If you're a parent, how many of us have tried to pass our faith on to our children, and then as teens or adults, we watch them walk away? And you wonder, what happened? What did I do wrong? Was it me? Was it my child? Was it just all their choice? Was did the church do something wrong that turned them off? I mean, what happened? That they walked away from the faith. The thing that to me is so important and so important to God. You know, um, you know even, even in the Bible, the whole, the whole parenting thing is so unpredictable. I mean, it, this gives me comfort and I hope this gives you some comfort. To know that the only perfect father that there ever was, which is God the Father, his first two children walked away from him and rebelled. So even a perfect parent... Had kids who rebelled. I mean, that tells you how tough parenting can be. And then you look at some of the other stories and you have some really, they're good men. But they were kind of lousy dads. Samuel, the prophet. I mean, this was a good man. In fact, he grew up watching his mentor, Eli, the priest. He watched Eli and his sons who were were rebels and just, they were just kind of crummy guys. He watched that whole family dynamic. And then Samuel grows up, and he has two boys. And guess what his two boys do? They rebel. And they don't walk in God's ways. And they abuse worship. So how that happen? Was, was Samuel the reason for that happening? And then you have King David, one of the greatest men of faith ever. You know what? He wasn't a very good dad. He married multiple women. This is when they were doing polygamy. It was not monogamy back then. So he had, oh, I can think of uh, one at least three wives, and then they had concubines. They had all these women, all right? And so that he has kids by all these multiple women, and so you have a lot of half-brothers, half-sisters. So he's got, um, he's got a son named Amnon who falls in love, or he's just, he's just infatuated with his half-sister Tamar. And he basically rapes her. And then he rejects her. She says, well, you, you can't do this to me, and then just reject me. You've got to marry me. And, and he said, no, get, a, get, get her out of my sight. Well, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, is steamed. He is hopping mad at Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. And he lures Amnon into a feast and then has his half-brother murdered. And then he goes taking off. And all the while, dad, David the dad. He's just kind of, well, I don't know what to do. Just passive and all this stuff. It's like a soap opera, you know, rape and murder going on among his own children. And David was a good man. And then here's a the, here's the, flip it around. Did you know that there are some really good kids who had lousy dads? It works both ways. You have good guys with lousy, with kids that go astray. And then you have terrible fathers who have great kids. It's like, go figure. One guy, King Saul. He started off good, but then he became bad. He had this son named Jonathan. Jonathan was a prince. He's a great guy. How did Saul end up with such a great son? And then there's another one, Josiah. It says of Josiah, he was this king, became young. He was just a boy when he became king. It said, Josiah had a heart after God. He's one of the greatest kings that, that Israel had. But his father, Amon, was evil. Evil dad, great kid. Go figure. How do you explain that? Like I said, parenting is a head-scratcher. Now, the good news I'm going to have to share with you today is something that we don't hear a lot about parenting. I've only heard this, um, I've only heard this message in a book and by a speaker, by, by one guy, Bruce Wilkinson. I've never heard anybody else talk about this. So this is kind of special this morning. Okay? When, we talk, when you hear about parenting you usually hear about how can I raise my kids to be good people? How can I teach them the Bible? How can I, you know, and we do all those things. But there's something about parenting that i want to share with you that I think is a real key to helping our kids have the faith passed on to them. I believe if we practice this with our kids, with our grandkids, or just with the next generation, that we increase the probability that our children become followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm kind of surprised that I haven't heard more pastors. Now, I'm not listening into everybody. But I'm kind of surprised when I hear the topic of parenting, I have not heard this more. Okay? So, let me read to you. This is the book of Judges. So, you can open up your phone or get out your old paper Bible like I'm doing. Open up the Judges. First five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then Joshua, Judges. It's, it's book number seven. And this is a time in Israel's history when these people were clueless, okay? That's why we're talking about being clueless in America, because they were clueless during this time. But we pick up a very important thing about parenting. So I'm going to start in verse 6, Judges chapter 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. That's a key word, seen. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Tamah Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Geish. After that whole generation, verses 7 and 10 are the key verses. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them up out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. That's the female version of Baal, like a male and female version. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. All right. There was what I believe was the greatest generation in the history of Israel was the Joshua generation. This is greater, I think, of two great eras in Israel's history. Um, and, and I believe it was the, the time of Joshua and the time of David. But I believe the time of Joshua was, was even greater. Because it was kind of wholesale, the whole nation walking in the ways of God. Um, it says in verse 7 that they served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. There was no other generation like this generation who saw and accomplished so much. Remember, they entered the promised land, they conquered um, large portions of the land, and then they they served the Lord faithfully. Now, this they had front row seats into what God had done. Okay, think about this generation. So if you remember, God brought Israel out of Egypt. And then because they were unfaithful, the older generation, it says everybody who was at one point. Oh, boy. Anyway, I'll just say this. I won't go into numbers. The older generation, because of their unbelief, God says, you're going to die in the wilderness. So think about this. In 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, millions of people died in the wilderness. I, I calculated it one time and I came up with like, they were doing 37 funerals a day, burying people, waiting for that older generation to die out because there was so much unbelief and faithlessness. God says, you're not taking that unbelief and faithlessness into the promised land. The, what characterized the people of God was that they'd be a people of faith. And so you had to get that, that out of their system. And that meant the older people had to die because they didn't believe. And so God says, I'm going to raise up the younger generation, and their leader was Joshua. Now Joshua was older, so he took the young people who had faith. And you're going to take that generation, and we're going to take them into the promised land. And so this younger generation, they saw 400 years of slavery end under Moses. They saw the ten plagues that forced the hand of Pharaoh to let, his, let God's people go. And when they walked out of the land, they came up against that barrier of the Red Sea. And they had the Egyptians in hot pursuit. They saw the Red Sea open up. And they walked through on dry land. And when they got through, all three million of them, or how many people, it was over a million. When they got through, Egyptians, the Egyptian chariots and horses come running through too. And God closed the sea over the Egyptians and they all died. Bodies floating in the ocean. They saw that with their eyes. They witnessed it. They smelled it. They felt it. And then for 40 years, every day they woke up to food being delivered to their doorstep. Like DoorDash. Only better. They didn't have to pay for it. Every day, they step outside their tent in the desert and they go, what's that on the ground? And it's called manna. That's, why, that's what manna means. What is it? It's this white stuff on the ground. It was like bread. It was kind of sweet. And they'd pick it up and they'd store it and they'd have enough for the day. They said so when it came Sunday, I mean not Sunday, Saturday, the Sabbath, God said... On Friday, collect enough for two days. And, and, they would do, and, and they had that food for 40 years. And then they had quail at night. They had meat in the evening. They had bread in the morning for 40 years. They saw it. They tasted it. They experienced it. And then they had this remarkable, amazing, majestic deliverance of the Ten Commandments. That was, so, I mean, don't just think of laws, because when that was delivered, the people were so scared by the glory they saw on the mountain, they didn't even hardly want to look. I mean, there was lightning, and there was, there was trumpet sounds, and all this stuff going on. And then they came to the Jordan River. Then they, then they saw, when there were rebels in the camp, like Korah, this guy was trying to overthrow Moses. God told Moses, Moses, back up. Get everybody away from Korah, because I'm about to do something. Everybody backs up. And all of a sudden, the earth starts shaking, the ground opens up, and Korah and all in his group are swallowed by the earth. Boom. I mean, they saw that. And then they come to the, uh, they come to the Jordan River at flood stage. God says, you're walking through the Jordan River with all that water. God says, just get in it. Get the priest, get him in the water, and it's going to stop. And that's what happened. They crossed the Jordan River. And then they take on the, one of their first, I think it was their first, was a... Was, uh, they went against the Jericho, and they go against the walls. What do they do? Do they use battering rams? they catapults, cannonballs? No. What do they do? They shout, and they blow trumpets. Well, that's no military strategy. That's crazy. Nobody does that in war. Well, they did because that's what God told them to do. They were a people of faith, and they saw it. Bam, 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 bam. They saw it over and over and over again. They walked in his ways, that whole generation. There was never a generation again like the Joshua generation. But then something happened where things took a turn for the worse. And by the second or third generation, the greatest generations, kids and grandkids, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they served the Baals. You're thinking, how in the world could they do that? Their parents and grandparents were over here conquering the land, having these amazing experiences with God, seeing the miraculous and the supernatural and serving him, and in, in one or two generations they turn away? How does that happen? Well, it says in verse 10, They didn't know the Lord, nor what He had done. They really didn't know Him. And they didn't didn't see anything. And so they rejected the faith of their fathers. They didn't see and experience the goodness of God. God was not real to them. And because the Creator redeeming Holy God was not real to them, they attached themselves to these posers, these false, fake, Phony, powerless gods of their neighbors around them, Baal and Ashtoreth. What did Baal and Ashtoreth promise to the people of Israel and, and to the Canaanites? They promised them good crops, they promised them political power. And they're thinking, well, you know, we don't have any manna left ever since we came into the promised land. We're, we're not nomads anymore. We got to plant ourselves to become farmers. We got to start growing our own food. We got to have, we got all these people around us who are a threat. So what do we need? Well, you know what? Every, the neighbors around us, Baal and Ashereth, well, they, they're good at bringing crops. They'll teach us how to make food. And they'll provide us poli- with political power. And so we're going to serve them because we don't know the true God. We don't know what he's done. So we'll just turn to everything, every, do what everybody else is doing around us. And that's what they did. Funny thing is, strange, sad thing. God said, okay, you want to trust Baal and Asheroth for your food and for political power? What did God do? I'm going to send raiders, not the Oakland raiders or the Las Vegas raiders. I'm going to send the first type of raider. And what they're going to do is they're going to go in and they're going to raid your crops. You're not going to have food. You thought those gods had power to give you food. They don't have power to give you food. In fact, I'm taking it away. And you thought you're going to have political power by trusting the bells and Baals. Oh, no, you're not going to have political power because those people are going to oppress you. They're going to oppress you. You won't have it. You're going to be weak and lame. Just to expose how lame these gods are that you're now serving. So here's, here's the, the point. Children who experience God are far more likely to trust him and follow him than children who do not experience God. Beyond reading the Bible, which we need to do, and taking children to church or youth groups, which we need to do, our kids and our grandkids need personal encounters with God and his goodness, So that their hearts gravitate towards Him. God needs to be real. So how can we help the next generation experience God so that they're more likely to trust the God who gives life? And so you can write these in your notes this morning. First thing I want to say is, number one, you need to experience God yourself. Let's read verse 7 together. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. If you want to do this on your notes, underline that word seen. Let me ask you how are you doing with your faith in seeing God and experiencing Him and knowing Him intimately? Have you experienced the wonder of being forgiven? And just know, you know what, I know what it's like to bear that guilt and feel, you know, just have this sin. It's kind of a darkness in my life. And then to have that removed, it just kind of opens up the airway and the passageway and the relationship with God. Man, it's it's beautiful. I mean, to experience that, that that's real. Have you experienced peace in your life? Have you made amends in any relationships? Made things right? And you experienced, well, that's really good when that happened. Or have you cried out to God for help with your finances or for your health? Or Have you seen God come through for you in your life? Do you have a history? Do you have a story to tell? Has God delivered you from danger? Have you ever gotten in hot water where you really were concerned for your life and you saw and God came through? Have you been freed of of toxic anger or a um, corrosive tongue or, or disabling addiction where you can tell the next generation, this is what God has done for me. We need to experience the reality of God so that he's not some some fairy tale. The God we worship needs to be as real as the manna was to those Israelites for 40 years. They saw it every day, and and he needs to be real. As I, I was alluding to this before, Dallas Willard, who at one time was the chair of the philosophy department at USC, and he was not in the popular strain of philosophers because of the way he viewed reality. And he said this, I read a book, it's a great book, it's called, it's Becoming Dallas Willard. How did this man become the man that he was? And he said, for Dallas, it says, The notion that knowledge and reality are limited to the measurable and visible world was the single most destructive idea in existence. Because what that does for Christians and in the church is that, you know, this stuff could just be a fairy tale, it's really not that real. You know, I, I don't really need to pray for healing because it's really not real. And I don't really need to call out to God because he's really not going to come through. Because, I mean, he's a good idea and everything. I mean, it's des- destructive. The kingdom's not real. The ways of the kingdom. I, ha- I remember the struggle as a young man in my young adult years, you know, reading Jesus' words where he says, Do not worry about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat where you're going to live. Do not worry. You know what? In my world, you had to worry and be anxious. In my church world, I didn't see people who were not anxious and not worrying. And I thought, I don't know if that's true. Because I don't see that happening in my Christian culture. Everybody worries and everybody is anxious. And right now, I'm poor. I don't have a job. And I don't know how I'm going to put food on the table. And you're telling me not to worry, God? Come on. And it was like, it was like I got a I break with what I've seen in my Christian experience. And say, am I going to believe the word of God and what Jesus said? Is it real? Or am I going to follow the pattern of what I see in the Christian world? And I decided I'm going to go with Jesus. And if I die, it's his his fault. Because he told me, he told me to do this. And so I'm going to do it. And I I really, seriously, I know I'm being melodramatic. But seriously, I thought this way. I thought I might die because of this but I was willing to risk it on the word of God. It's either real or not. And, and so we, we live in this place where so many people don't believe in the reality. It's just fairy tale. It's fable. He's just, he's, you know, whatever. So it needs to become that way. You know, I, I remember, you know, when I, when I did receive forgiveness and how I changed on the inside and how, how there's something changed, you know, in my body when my sins were gone. And I remember, you know, when I decided, God, you can have all of me. And I can remember that night. I can re- remember the relief in my body that happened. And I can remember when I was in college and I was trying to figure out, God, what do you want me to do with my life? I'm so confused. I don't know where I'm going. I'm just like, ah. Uh. And I remember when he revealed to me when I was putting my socks on, getting ready for a worship service. And I remember I was putting my socks on, sitting on my bed my dorm room. And God, told me, my will for you is for you to know me and to glorify me. And I was like, wow, never thought of that. And I remember the freedom. There's something like lifted off of my shoulders, you know. I mean, when you have those encounters, and it's like, because of that, my faith, God became good. And I thought, there's nothing else that I'm drawn towards, because there's nothing else who's good like him. And my confidence in him got elevated because I started to experience him. And the more I experienced him in my life, the more my faith grew. We need that. Second thing to do is, number two, share these stories with Generation Next. Share the stories. Let's read this. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So they, they said, I want you to tell the story about where Passover came from. It's that night when the death the angel came in and struck down all the firstborn of Egypt. And it's like, oh, that's like, that's violent. That's like R-rated. Yeah, that's what God did to set us free from slavery. 400 years. And don't ever forget it. And every time they had Passover, they remember that story. So tell your kids and your grandkids what God has done for you. Let them see him working in your life. Put yourself out there, man. Take risks, the risk of faith, by praying for healing and asking God for help. Believe. Don't think that you have to protect God's reputation if you think, he may not come through if I ask him to do this, because God will answer. Either yes, no, or you need to wait. God answers our prayers. Take the leap of faith in front of your kids. Let them see it working. Recently, I was with uh, uh, neighborhood kids, and, and I asked them, I, I said, okay, what's your biggest challenge? And they said, well, it's school. We, we struggle with school. I said, well, can I pray for you that you would do better in school? And they said, yeah. And so I prayed for them. And then I came back, you know, some weeks later. I said, okay, I want to ask you, how's, how are you doing in school? And one of them said, I'm, I'm doing better. I said, all right, great. Answer to prayer. It, it's things like that. Let's invite God. And those aren't even my kids. Those are neighborhood kids. So share those stories with, the, with generation next. Number three, experience God together in the pressure cooker. All right? It says, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. So underline the word lifetime. Lifetime. What was the lifetime of Joshua? What happened? What they experience? Well, man, it was, it was tough. They experienced uh, bondage, slavery. They experience death threats. They experience food shortages. They experience conflict. They experience impossible odds. Don't wait for your life to get easy before you encounter God. Invite God into the mess, into the arena when it's hard. When you're sick, invite God into that sickness. Ask him to move. When you have money shortfalls, ask God to move. Let your kids know, hey, you know, you could pray with your children over that. You know, survival. Pray for God's help and survival. For, for broken down cars, for emotional depletion, for relational conflict. Call out to God right there when the dust is flying. And when the odds are stacked against you. Don't just complain about the hard times. Direct your heart to God in the hard times to see what he's going to do to pull you out of it. Because that's what the Joshua generation did. In his lifetime, when there was bondage and death threats and food shortages and conflict and impossible odds, God met them and he was there. I, I'm not, I don't consider myself a person with a gift of faith or healing. But I thought, well, you know what? I don't like seeing my kids getting sick all the time. And you know how it is. Your kids get sick, and then what do you do? And We lived in a place at one time where the doctor was an hour away, 60 miles north. And so every time there was an ear infection, Donna would, she, you know, I'd have to go to church. I'm a pastor. She'd load the kids up in the car and drive 60 miles north to go get this ear infection checked out. And they had all, all other kinds of sickness. But I just said, you know, we're just going to pray. I don't have to protect God's reputation. I'm going to ask him, God, would you heal my child? And so I don't know. I, and I, I really, I didn't know how effective it was. And then years later, my oldest, Alicia, was, was an adult. And she said, you know, Dad, every time you prayed, it seemed like things got better. I was like, yeah, cool. I didn't know that. But she experienced that god is good god's a healer invite him into the sickness my son um I, I wanted my kids to see god working in in like like I, I never saw adults share their faith with unbelievers and i wanted to know how to share my faith but i didn't see it in action and so when i had my kids i thought i want my kids to see this so on a couple of occasions i remember my son jeff who's now a pastor I was uh, talking to a closet world salesman. We're going to have a closet built in their their room. And all of a sudden, we got talking about spiritual things. And all of a sudden, I'm sharing Christ with the closet world salesman. And Jeff walks in, and he's kind of like, you know, like listening. You've got the real big ears. And I'm going, yeah, Jeff, you just keep listening. I want you to experience this. I want you to see what it's like when somebody's sharing Christ with somebody. And then later on, I took a group of teens down to Disneyland and he was sitting in the bench seat and there was a teenage girl next to me, passenger seat. And I started sharing Christ with her and Jeff's leaning forward, like listening. It's like, good. I want you to hear this. I want you to experience this in real time, real life. And then Molly, my daughter over here, she doesn't remember this. She was three or four years old it, was, it snowed. We, I said, hey, Molly, let's go to the snow in our, you know, our, our mountain vehicle, a Ford Aerostar. So I get in the Ford Aerostar, load Molly up, and we go into the mountains and where there's snow, and there's, like, there's nobody around, and we get into a place we got stuck. We're in the mountains, me and my three- or four-year-old daughter. I'm going, great, nice move, Dad. You know, it's like nobody's up here. <laughs> And so I did the only thing a caring dad would do. I had her get out and push the van. No, I didn't do that. So <laughs> I, uh, I got out and I, I went to the car. I said, Molly, I started talking to her. Three four years old, I said, Molly, we're, you know, we're stuck. <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. I do not know what to do. I do not know how to get out of the snow that we're in. I said, we're going to pray. I said, Jesus, please send someone to help us get out of the snow. We are stuck. He knew that. And 30 seconds later, a truck with three men comes around the corner. They pull over. I flag them down. I say, could you push me? He say, no problem. It took them 10 seconds. Push me out of the snow. We're on our way. Molly, God help us. He answered our prayer. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what we need to do in our families with the next generation. They need to see that. They need to experience it. So do it. Last thing there is repeat those stories. I love what, I love. Psalm 78. Let's read this together. He decreed statutes for Jacob, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so the next generation would know them. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. So why do we keep repeating this story? So they, they, they'll put their trust in God, they'll keep his commands. You know, imagine having such a robust experiential faith in your home that the next generation is drawn to the loving true God while being able to easily identify all imposters. I mean seriously, I've had hard times in my life as a believer and there have been times I said, "Okay, what are my options?" If I decide to leave the faith, where am I going to go? And I start ticking them off and I'm going, "They're all losers." They're all losers. Hedonism, pleasure, that's a loser. Come on, it's a lot of diminishing returns. It's never enough. Materialism, loser. I have enough stuff. It doesn't satisfy. I'm not going to go to some multi-God thing, some self-help God, some nature God. They're all losers. You know, in my, really, that's my testimony. There's nothing else. There's either Jesus or there's nothing. And, so that, and a lot of that is just because I've experienced him. Uh, uh, some of you may know of a pastor and writer named John Piper. Um, and John Piper has a son named Abraham who was a, a rebel. He was a prodigal. But he came back and he shares this story. I want to share this because his son Abraham says some very good things. He says uh, on two, one Tuesday morning, so he's, in his, he's 19 years old and he's running away and doing all the stuff his parents don't want him to do. His parents' hearts are grieved. So he says, one Tuesday morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email. And I had a message from a girl that I'd met a few weeks before. And her email mentioned a verse in Romans. I went down to the Circle K and bought a 40-ounce can of Miller High Life for twenty-nine, And then I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading Romans. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember what it was. So I started at the beginning of the book. By the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. The best way I know to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it possible for me to love Jesus. When he makes this possible and at the same time gives you a glimpse of the true wonder of Jesus, it is impossible to resist the call. He goes on to give 12 things he recommends to parents who have prodigals. And number one and number 12 are the same thing. He says this. Your rebellious child's real problem, he says, point them to Christ. Your rebellious child's real problem is not drugs or sex or cigarettes or porn or laziness or crime or cussing or slovenliness or homosexuality or being in a punk band. The real problem is that your child doesn't see Jesus clearly. Clearly. The best thing that you can do for rebellious children and the only reason to follow any of these suggestions is to show them Christ. It won't be simple or immediate, but the sins in their life that distress you and destroy them will begin to disappear only when they see Jesus more as he actually is. He says again, the goal is not that they'll be good kids again. It's not that they'll get their hair cut and start taking showers it's not that they'll like classical music instead of deathcore. It's not that the vote can serve it again by the next election. The goal is not for you to stop being embarrassed at your weekly Bible study or even for you to be able to sleep at night knowing they're not going to hell. The only ultimate reason to pray for them, welcome them, plead with them, eat with them, or take an interest in their interests is so that their eyes will be open to Jesus Christ. And not only. Is he the only point, but he's the only hope. When they see the wonder of Jesus, satisfaction will be redefined. He himself will replace money or the praise of man or the high or the sex that they're staking their eternities on right now. I really believe that. Our, our, you know, people. When you experience the best, you know when you have T-bone steak or filet mignon, spam doesn't taste so good. And sin is like spam. Everybody's chasing spam. It's like God wants to give us flame and yawn. Like Jesus said, "I am the real life." That's what He said. My blood is real drink. My body is real food. And so we need this to be working in our families, in our lives. So I'm uh, Peter coming up, and I'm just wondering, you know, is there something that you need to experience, or, or somebody that you really care about that you want to pray for this morning? I want to open the altar. If you just want to come and do that. But if you you like, you're like oh, I've got something impossible in my life going on. I need breakthrough. I want to see God. I really want to see him. I want to experience him. And In some area, I invite you to come. You know, and if you've got somebody that you really, you know, I've got this neighbor on my heart. I'm going to, it's his birthday today. I, 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 so I got him a donut and I got him a card. I'm going to go visit him today. You know, I want, I want him to experience God he doesn't want God he doesn't think he's real and I want him to know that if you have somebody like that just come on forward amen Um, we're going to sing go ahead and stand up and and let's let's pray and I'm also going to invite you know at some point if you need someone to pray with you to raise your hand we'll do that too but if we need breakthrough this morning experience the reality of God in our lives come on forward Jesus, you love it when people are desperate. I think of that woman who'd been bleeding for 18 years. And she came, pushed her way through the crowd just to touch you, just to get her hand on your your robe. And you healed that woman. And you see the people that are here but more importantly you see the hearts of everybody that's here Lord you see the struggles with children you see the struggles with mental illness that are represented you see the health problems money challenges maybe there's some addiction stuff going on and Jesus we're inviting you now to hear us to be real to answer our prayers and our hearts cry come into our homes and bring your peace to quiet that mind of a loved one that won't shut down that's so troubled Lord the medical community can't do much psychiatrists and psychologists can't do much but you can so we ask that you do it God, that you change hearts of people that we care about who are out there in the far country. And you're just a fairy tale. You're like the Easter bunny. We pray that you reveal yourself to them and draw them home. God, you told us not to worry about money. That you got us. You're the provider. You're Jehovah Jireh. And I pray for anybody with financial problems. Jesus, you break through. You provide. However, you're going to do that. God, I pray that we'd have testimonies of you coming to us and changing things, of you dividing the Red Sea, of you giving us manna. God, of you helping us get through the, the, the Jordan River, overcome that wall that's in front of us, that you'd blow it over, just like you did the wall of Jericho. Do it, Lord. If you just need, if you want somebody to pray with you, just raise your hand right now. Anybody that like that and needs prayer? Okay. All right. All right. Just come up with Rachel, yeah. Just come up with Rachel, yeah. So, uh, Lord, we are, we are um, looking forward to what you're going to do. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're not strong in ourselves. We're weak. Our strength is in you. We just put ourselves out there. We're not gonna, we don't have to protect your reputation. We trust you're going to do it. And so we pray it. Jesus, you're real. Your kingdom is real. You're here. Do your work. And we pray it all in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. 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 If you have a story to tell, something happens, please tell somebody. Let me know, okay? Write me an email. God bless you. Have a great week.